Okay, folks, the holiday seasons are now upon us. If you've ever wanted to have old-time radio, then you better make a beeline to the oldtimeradiodvd.com website. Place your order today. You get extra bonus 127 cereals. These cereals sell for $4.99 on eBay and even higher on Amazon. So that's over $600 just for the cereals alone that you get, plus all the old-time radio shows and bonuses that were included there with the original. So don't be wasting time. Go to oldtimeradiodvd.com today. Place your order and get this wonderful collection for you, your grandparents, your mom and dad, whoever. It's well worth the $85. That's right. It's ridiculous. Go to oldtimeradiodvd.com today and place your order. You'll be glad you did. Step back now into the world of 1895, to a city, London, and a time when, for all intents and purposes, all was well with the world. To a street, Baker Street, swirling with yellow fog, where the wet pavements barely reflect the flickering gas lamps. To an address, 221B, where dwell two of the most famous personalities in all the world's literature, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. We're going to step into that fabled living room where so many of those great adventures began and take a close-up look at the world of Sherlock Holmes to discover, if we can, the man behind the myth or the myth behind the man. Good evening. I'm your host, Sam Feinberg, and joining me in this adventure are several noted Sherlockians. Mr. Jack Coley, the present head mastiff of the, Cop the Sons of the Copper Beaches, Professor H.W. Starr, one of the founders of the Copper Beaches and for many years the head mastiff, Mr. Robert Broderick, co-founder of another Sherlockian group in Philadelphia, the Masters Class, and finally, but not least, Dr. Julian Wolfe, the editor of the Baker Street Journal and one of the most renowned Sherlockian scholars in the, in the world. Gentlemen, we'll get into our discussion in just a moment. Gentlemen, uh, could each of you tell us uh, why you think the phenomenon of Sherlock Holmes started and why it continues to hold the attention of thousands of people all over the world? Uh, Dr. Wolf, why don't we start with you? Well, I, there have always been a lot of people interested in Sherlock Holmes, but when the present interest became so great, what crystallized, so to speak, it was in the early 1930s, and there several things happened at that time which tended to bring it out into the open. The first thing was Christopher Morley's uh, formation of the Baker Street Irregulars. The second was that at that time, the omnibus edition of Sherlock Holmes was published in this country, where you could get all of the stories and know you had them all in one set. And the, not the least, the third was Vincent Starrett book, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which is about the best book that was ever written about Sherlock Holmes, in spite of all the new ones. And I, and I think anybody who, who was mixed up in the tide at that time couldn't help but become interested in Sherlock Holmes. And 
And from then on, it grew and grew because it was a very nice body of literature, not too big, it, and you could study it completely without an awful lot of trouble. And that's about it. And since then, we've had it. We've had it. Of course, it's grown a lot. The literature has grown a lot. It's grown a lot, but see, the interest has always been there. They talk about a revival of interest. It's not a revival exactly. It's, it's, it's always been there, mm -hmm. but just we've had a lot of books, and everybody's trying to cash in on the deal. Okay. Professor Starr, or can I call you Bill? Uh, if you prefer. <laughs> okay. Uh, would you give us your thoughts on this uh, phenomena? Well, I think there are several reasons. One that's usually mentioned is that many of us tend to look back to the Victorian age, or the latter part of it, as a period of security, whether it was or it wasn't in reality, it seems so to us. That is one, but I think Rex Stout once in an article many years ago in the Saturday Review mentioned what is an even stronger reason for the appeal. Sherlock Holmes is the per perfect reasoning man, the logical machine that we all would like to be, but usually are not. Mm. And therefore, this strikes a responsive chord in us. Now, I know this on the series, I believe is on this channel, there was one character who presumably was not designed to be the leading character in a show you have called, I think, Star Trek. I think he goes on the name of Mr. Spock, and he is supposed to be a logical machine. Well, oddly enough, among his fans, I have heard, he has become extraordinarily popular. Well, therefore, I think that is one of the reasons. It's an interesting analogy between a modern-day uh, character and one, uh, the one of Sherlock Holmes. There are parallels. Right. Uh, Jack, could we hear your opinions of the phenomenon? All right. I'll uh, second the motion very heartily on what Julian and Bill said, because uh, there's certainly very strong reasons for it. I think above all, though, is the fact that nowhere in literature, to my knowledge, are any two characters so real, so three-dimensional, so vivid, Furthermore, they grow and develop throughout the stories. You don't get introduced in the first book to a person as you do in most series. You know 95% of what there is to know about them. If you can take, I'm not going to mention others because it might be embarrassing. Right. But in most cases, you meet the detective, and uh, if you read 50 more books by the same author, and this is frequently possible, you might add 5% to your knowledge, and that's it. And the home stories, as you go through the stories, with each one, you learn a new facet of Holmes' character, a new facet of Watson's character, perhaps, or the relationship. You're well, well into the story before you even know that Holmes wasn't an orphan when his brother Mycroft suddenly pops into view. Right. And uh, not only in the stories, but in the introductions, you had this wonderful setting, the uh, little discussions, the uh, facts, the shows of uh, virtuosity in the science of deduction that have, in some cases, nothing directly to do with the story, but add so much to them. I've caught myself, and I think the others here have probably done the same thing sometimes, late at night when it's too late to read a whole book or even a long, short story, just skimming through a few of them and reading those little marvelous little introductions and getting that fresh feeling every time from them. There's an ambience that comes out in the uh, in those introductions, which is really marvelous, and you can keep coming back to, right. as I've often done. 
Bob would yuck. We have your the, thoughts uh, on it. The period, the uh, late Victorian, early Edwardian times, uh, it's so fascinating. And uh, it, it, it's escapist for us. It's an era that we can go to that seems secure. And uh, the means of transportation that were used are fascinating. The foods that they ate, uh, the dress, the clothing, the style of living, living uh, all these things, I think, combined are like magnets that attract you to read the literature and to enjoy it, especially the, uh, the Sherlock Holmes himself. He's uh, the supreme thinker, uh, sharp, and also uh, Basil Rathbone, the uh, series that this channel shows. Uh, he was such a superb actor that he himself would be a vehicle to attract you to these stories and to find out and want to know more about them. Uh, Dr. Wolf, you uh, alluded uh, just a moment ago to uh, the Baker Street Irregulars, uh, and many people are curious as to the origins of the Irregulars and uh, how it got started, and you touched on that. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more uh, about it and some of the personalities involved. Well, the first thing is Christopher Morley was a great man for starting clubs, and most of them lasted a very short time. He always had an idea to start a club and he had used to have lunch luncheons with his friends and colleagues and one and all, none of the clubs that he started lasted very long. For instance the three hours for lunch club and the Grill Plaza Club and the several others. But this Baker Street Irregulars caught on because at that time, he edited a column in the Saturday Review of Literature, and he gave them publicity. Uh, I don't like to go into too much detail, but one of the things, his brother, uh, not Felix, his other brother, uh, had provided a crossword puzzle about Sherlock Holmes, which was not a very good puzzle, but it served the purpose. Puzzle like me. <laughs> well, it had too many unconnected letters. Right, so, right, right. So, it's a court, but for its purpose, it did well because uh, uh, Chris Morley was got to be distressed. So many people were considering themselves members of the Baker Street Irregulars that he decided all those who had solved the problem or the puzzle properly could become members, and that was the origin of the group of the group. Uh, thank you, Dr. Wolf, and we'll be back in a moment. Jack Coley, uh, I think, has a I, uh, remark. I have to disagree slightly with one of your remarks, Julian, when you said the uh, Christopher Morley clubs didn't last very long. Uh, using the master's own methods of deduction, I would assume that the three-hour for lunch club did last at least three hours. Well, that was long enough. <laughs> for most of uh, perhaps. Uh, General, we have two members uh, on this panel who were deeply involved with Philadelphia's two science societies of the Baker Street Irregulars. And I'd wondered, Bill, first, if you could tell us, uh, since you were involved in the founding, how the Sons of the Copper Beaches were founded, and how did the name evolve? At a New York meeting in 1947, as I remember, Edgar Smith, who was then uh, running the Baker Street Irregulars, pointed out there were a good many people from the Philadelphia area who uh, were much interested in homes and suggested we should have a science society. And Carl Anderson and I, who were present, and I think Jim Montgomery, 
immediately decided to do something about it. And uh, it took us a good many months to make the immediate decision because on, I believe, December 7, 1947, we met at Scheuer's restaurant in Philadelphia. And there were several suggestions as a name for the club, the Tankerville Card Club and others. But there was one story which did mention Philadelphia, which had not been used by any other science society, as the scourers of the Valley of Fear had been out in California. And that was the adventure of the Copper Beaches. Also, I'd bought a house that had a Copper Beach in front of it. <laughs> and um, so we decided we would call ourselves the Sons of the Copper Beaches. And fortunately, we have no appropriately named Ladies Auxiliary. <laughs> it's a great name if you don't drop uh, the middle word. <laughs> the middle word. requires <laughs> careful pronunciation. Yes, yes. Uh, Bob, uh, you are a co-founder of uh, the Master's Class, and if I might uh, mention, it is a younger Sherlockian society, and I only use that term because it's true. Uh, yes, it's, can you tell us how it came about? Sam, it's a, a younger society, and it, it came about uh, because simply uh, the Copper Beaches had such a long waiting list. If they do maintain a list, I don't know where they keep it, <laughs> we but do. we had a great deal of difficulty in getting through to them. And then we corresponded with Dr. Wolf, uh, the home office in New York, and Dr. Wolf suggested starting our own seeing society. And uh, we were all for this, and my dear friend Norm Whitaker and I got together. And we went through the canon looking for an appropriate name, and uh, we came to the story of the Priory School, and it dealt with students and the master homes. And uh, we considered ourselves to be students. So we looked through this particular story and we found that Holmes refers to the master's class and we use this for our group and this is how it came about. Mm -hmm. And uh, this has been our third year now. We hold uh, meetings on an irregular basis and uh, we've had four so. And we've been pretty successful. We're still looking for new members. So. Uh, I might uh, mention at this time that uh, if you are interested in uh, more information about the master's class, perhaps you should uh, write to uh, Robert Broderick uh, in care of this station and mention right. Sherlock Holmes, and we'll see that the... Also, I, I have to mention that we do allow women in our society, oh, yes. which yes. is something yes. special. Yes, uh, now, I have no. I will have no questions or comments I'm sure you'll about get letters on the copper beaches <laughs> in the relation to women. Well, we follow the master's principle. Right, and right. The Baker Street irregular. Right, right. Uh, we've been talking here about the Sherlock Holmes, and uh, we almost uh, act as if uh, he were a real person. Uh, of anyone? course, he was. Well, I just wanted yeah. to confirm that. Uh, and Certainly. And, uh, Bob, would you have any comments on, uh... Well, there's, uh, the biography with, written by, uh, William Baring Gould. Uh, he authenticates many of the incidents in the stories. He authenticates the address, 221B Baker Street. Um, he authenticates the, uh, birth date of Holmes, which is January 6th, 1854. And, uh, this is also a big day for our group that we celebrate the birthday. And, uh, my feelings are that, uh, if uh, the man's death hasn't been reported yet. 
person. And he must still be living, and he must have been a real person. And so eminent none of our, I'm sorry. None of our uh, leading uh, newspapers or magazines have published the death of Holmes. And so eminent a personage would, of course, have been reported in, uh, in papers like the London Times and the New York Times. I'm so obviously he is uh, living in Sussex and well and keeping bees. Um, gentlemen, is, had, was there or, or, or who was the real model uh, or who was Sherlock Holmes, really? And it's a kind of a, I'm asking three questions at once, but uh, Jack, would you... Uh, no, I, I think he's to some extent a composite. The the one single model, if you have to go back to one, and Doyle himself has mentioned this, was Dr. Joseph Bell at Edinburgh Medical School, who not only had the appearance, he's obviously the model for uh, Doyle's literary description of Holmes, although the artists have made some liberties of their own, and, and quite acceptable, justifiable ones, I think. But he actually made the same sort of deductions on his clinical patients to the amazement, delight, and uh, sometimes frustration of his students that uh, Holmes did with his clients. And uh, certainly there's a bit of Doyle himself in Holmes, but certainly Bell and I guess a splash of Doyle, and from then on it thins out into uh, minor strains of others he met in his travels. I have only one objection to make. Jack, you should have not you should not have said Doyle. You should have said the literary agent, because we know he merely edited and occasionally revised Watson's manuscript. Quite right, Bill. Quite right, quite right. And for this model we could also uh, perhaps add to it uh, Adrian Doyle, Doyle's son of the literary agent. He uh, suggested that uh, Doyle might have used as a model his secretary. Uh, the name escapes me right now. Does anybody need to call No, I think you could, he was the, uh, the fellow's name was Watson, and I think he used him, he used, no, it wasn't Watson, but he used him as a model for Watson, is my recollection, unless I'm... Oh, you're correct. I'm wrong. Getting yes. off the track, I don't think the royal secretary was ever considered as the model for Holmes. I think it was Watson. Watson. Right. Watson. 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 Right. Yes. That's my right. Favorite. Right. Let's get back on the track uh, with a, a, perhaps a brief look at the room and the street that uh, Holmes lived in. Uh, and we're talking, of course, about 221B Baker Street. Uh, what is, in fact, uh, would you, any of you gentlemen comment on the location generally thought to be the real 221 based on clues in, uh, well, in, in of all stories, the adventure of the empty house? Bob, would you want to start? Uh, Doyle didn't really help this uh, finding the location, uh, even when he was interviewed on it. He uh, stated that he had never stepped foot in Baker Street, and also from re uh, research at that time, it shows that the uh, the present location where 221B would be found, the street didn't extend that far up, and therefore there really wasn't a Baker Street. Um, I'm not exactly sure about the... Uh, Camden Mews and the connection there that was made with it. I believe there was a Camden house, but it was in a lower block and it was opposite uh, 111 Baker Street or some such similar number. And around there, they usually argue you will find the original residence. We will take this up in a moment when we return.
Dr. Wolf, would uh, you spend a moment uh, describing the actual location uh, of 221B? Well, it's a, there's more been written about the location of 220B than about many other things. We have several projects in which we have a large bibliography. One of them is the location of 221B, and the most documented or the best described effort to locate it was one that was made by Dr. Gray Chandler Briggs of St. Louis, a well-known rentgenologist of his day. He was armed with a copy of Vincent Starrett's Private Life and the, also the copy of the return of Sherlock Holmes, The Empty House, the first story in the return. And he took his camera with him and he followed the route to, to uh, describe the, by by the uh, Watson and the uh, return in which they, Sherlock Holmes and Watsons proceeded down a lot of dark alleys and turned corners and finally ended up in the, at a house and they went up the back stairway and the house was empty, of course, to fulfill all the conditions. Right. And Holmes lifted the window shade and said to Watson, where do you think we are? And Watson said, surely we are in Baker Street. And he said, yes, you are in Camden House, right across from our old quarters, and there it is. And, and uh, they went down, and Dr. Briggs went down, went out the front door, looked at the front of this house, and was surprised to see a sign on it said Camden House. Well, a pretty and a fan light over the door, which had been described. And, oh, right. I mean, it fitted the, the, the description perfectly, yes. Uh, and he took a picture of that house as Camden House, and he took a picture of the house directly across the street as 221B Baker Street. Yes. Well, anybody would be exultant at a feat like that, and he was, and he went to tell Conan Doyle about it, and Conan Doyle said, how would I know? I've never been in Baker Street in my life. <laughs> well, that sort of took some of the starch out of him. And there were many, uh, I mean, uh, there is no... There's no location been discovered. Ten people will tell you they've discovered the exact location, right, but right. They're, unfortunately they're all different. Right, right, and, right. And, 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 well, that's where it stands. Right, okay. Uh, once, uh, once you, of course, step into the living room, uh, you have another problem, and uh, there have been many uh, descriptions of the living room uh, taken from the various stories, and they all... Uh, seem to fit together, except I guess the one that gives everyone most of the trouble is the bow window, because in all of Baker Street, uh, I don't believe there are any bow windows, and that is one of the problems that Sherlockians wrestle with uh, as we uh, go through various problems that arise in the canon. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Dr. Wolf? Well, Unfortunately, the bow window is mentioned in two stories. If it had just been mentioned in the right. in the Masterman Stone, we wouldn't have to worry about it too much because we could dismiss that. That was a short, uh, theatrical adaptation. Right, right. But, but it is also mentioned in the Barrel Coronet, and so yes, yes. so we we have to try to make it. And I've tried to depict it somehow, but and I thought mine was as good as any, but. None of them are very good. <laughs> well, okay. 
unfortunately, there was a tremendous amount of material in each of the rooms, and uh, uh, I think Dr. Wolf earlier had alluded to the fact that if you try to get everything into the room, you'd have to have a, a stadium or a warehouse. Uh, there are three items which are almost universally associated with Sherlock Holmes, and yet, strangely enough, uh, were never really in any of the stories. And I wondered, uh, Jack, if we might start with you, uh, one being elementary, my dear Watson. The word elementary appears in a similar context in three stories, actually, but never elementary, my dear Watson. I don't believe he ever says elementary Watson. Uh, one case, Watson's describing, or rather, Holmes is describing one of his lines of reasoning to Watson, to Watson's eternal mystification, and uh, Watson says, extraordinary, and Holmes says, elementary, but not Watson, not, my dear Watson. Not together. And uh, the other somewhere say, my dear Watson. No. But never the two in conjunction. Yeah. Also, a superficial, my dear Watson is mentioned, but never elementary. He says, yeah. simplicity. Mm. several times, too. Uh, simplicity itself or something to that effect. All right, how about the uh, well-known calabash pipe? Uh, you're laughing, Bill. Why don't you describe how that crept into uh, I story? assume it crept in because of William Gillette's use of it or because an artist depicted it in some early illustration. But Holmes is recorded as having smoked only a straight pipe. Dr. Wolf, I think there are three allusions to pipes. Uh, more than more than three allusions, but three pipes. Three pipes that are mentioned, actually yeah, mentioned, yes. 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 There's the uh, briar pipe and the clay pipe, and then the once they mention his cherry wood pipe of disputation. Uh, it all meditative mood. It, it always amazes me, uh, being in a, in a pipe smoker, um, that Holmes's pre-breakfast pipe consisted of the dottles of all the pipes left over from the day before. And any pipe smoker can tell you uh, that can be pretty That'd strong, be like pre-breakfast. An old shoe. Uh, yeah. We'll be back in just a moment. There's one other item which uh, is uh, very closely associated with Sherlock Holmes, but which uh, we don't believe was actually in the stories, and that's the deerstalker. Jack, would you uh, tell us a little about that? Okay, I guess the closest description I could find with Deerstalker, in the Boscombe Valley mystery, Watson describes Holmes as wearing a close-fitting cloth cap. And on the illustration for the Strand Magazine, which the story first appeared by Sidney Paget in uh, 1891, he depicts this as a Deerstalker. Then, of course, it became quite famous because William Gillette used it as a uh, very strong prop, and I think mainly through Gillette it's become famous, but it actually did have, you could interpret, I suppose, that close-fitting cloth cap as a deerstalker, because that was one of the popular types of close-fitting cloth caps in that day. Uh, Bob, didn't you uh, mention to me somewhat earlier that uh, that was Paget's favorite? The uh, research I came across, a bit of information, was that the uh, when Paget had been secured to do the illustration for Doyle's stories, um, which was supposed to really be his brother Walter, but somehow the editor got the letter mixed up, and the younger brother Sidney uh, was secured for this position to do the drawings. And he would—he uh, was probably one of the first illustrators, from what I have looked up. And he wore this uh, 
deer stalker or ear flapping cap in the countryside, which was a popular hat at that time, and then he included it in his illustrations. Prior to this, it wasn't mentioned in the story, so it possibly he could be accredited with the uh, deer stalker and introducing it. It's not really canonical. Uh, since we've already uh, mentioned Sidney Paget, I think I think if there's one parallel between our age and the age of uh, Sherlock Holmes, that is in in the visual aspects of the stories. Uh, we are in a we are in a visual age today with television, and I think the visual impact that the Sidney Paget illustrations had on the stories and on the interest that they engendered, I don't think can be overemphasized. And I wondered if, uh, Dr. Wolf, you might have some comments on that. Well, Sidney Paget in England was the author. Yes. When over here, we have Frederick Dorr Steele, and, and a lot of people regard him as the real author. Neither one of them, I think, drew a Sherlock Holmes as was intended. And right. I, he was made more handsome in both and both uh, the uh, right, and right, and, right, right. In fact, uh, I, I I believe that the Steele used Gillette as his yes as his yes. model, and that's why people who comment how much Gillette looked like Sherlock Holmes don't realize it was the other way around. Well, <laughs> right, right, right. Bill, uh, well. Steele gave uh, Holmes a little more hair than Patchett did. Yes, uh, yes. Patchett shows him as thinning rather badly. Right. As right. I do, and even worse. Right. Or, or look at me. Uh, what, what, uh, what? It always has struck me, particularly about the transition from Paget to Steele, is the romanticizing of Holmes. He, in the earlier Paget drawings, he is a much more. He's a he, he doesn't look as romantic uh, as he does in some of the steel drawings, but I guess that uh, Doyle commented that that, wasn't, that didn't hurt because that helped uh, get women to read the stories. I think on uh, Doyle's uh, description, it's so vague, really, that he really left the door wide open for most of the illustrators to come. And he left an awful lot to the imagination, and this is part of the magic with the drawings. Does anyone here, uh, can anyone here quote the, uh, or come close to quoting the description of, uh, of Mr. Holmes? He mentions he had a high, rather penetrating voice. And as yes. far as I know, that idea has never been taken over by any actor. Right, no, none of the actors, of course, have a high strident voice. But the other, only other physical uh, description is, of my recollection, uh, serves is that he was a uh, tall, excessively lean, over six feet, and uh, made to appear taller. Uh, had a a hawk-like nose yeah. and a determined chin. As I uh, yeah, I was in study in Scarlet, I believe. His uh, physique is more closely described because you're told about his boxing ability. Yes, and right. you uh, right. can tell that he was a man who used a straight left and a right cross. Right. Right, uh, right. Rather on the Gene Tunney style of boxing, but right. much leaner than Tunney. Uh, the very, uh, very interesting part of his description, in uh, in uh, Starrett's private life, the first edition tells where his mentioned about his penetrating gray eyes, and he says that is the only place in which we are told about the color of his eyes. But uh, I think it was J. Finley Christ who compiled the uh, the directory of Sherlock Holmes. 
He found four other places where oh. they might. And none of them <laughs> found out in one story. And that was in the uh, sign of the four, where he's described of having of having black eyes. And the reason he it is not noticed is because it was the old sailor, who, who which was Sherlock Holmes and this guy came in and Watson speaks about his penetrating black, black eyes. <laughs> Well, maybe he was, uh, he, he used had contact, contact, contact lenses. Yes, I, I wrote that up in which several articles had been invented by Sherlock Holmes, and I decided he had also been, among other things, the inventor of contact lenses, lenses and that also the long playing record, because that was used. In the, in the Mazarin Stone, yes, yes. yes. I have another theory about the Mazarin Stone, which, and that is he was the first high-fi buff in the world, but... Because uh, I doubt if you found a hi-fi recording in those days. <laughs> well, it may be something I will write one day. All right. Uh, when we, uh, it's one, it's just a step from talking about the illustrators to the actual portrayers of Holmes uh, and Watson on the screen. And of course, I guess for our generation, or only put it for my generation, uh, Basil Rathbone was uh, the epitome of Sherlock Holmes. Um, in person, and I wonder if you might have some other impressions, Dr. Wolf. No, that's exactly my impression. Right. I happened to meet him once at a rehearsal of a television broadcast, and he, not only does he speak like Sherlock Holmes, he, he knows Sherlock Holmes and thinks like Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. Holmes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, he was always my... Of course, I never saw Gillette. Now, I won't talk to, I'm yeah. not in a position to argue with the people who say Gillette was the greatest, but if, I can't see how anybody could have been better than Basil Rathbone, except this new play, John Woods, who played it. It was marvelous. I think he's very good, and I think he's going to be mentioned marvelous. among the marvelous. trio. I did see Gillette. I was, Bill, really, you must have been so young that... Uh, I was younger, <laughs> right. distinctly, but let's not go into my exact age, but I do remember him rather vividly. He was extremely good. The play wasn't terribly good, but he carried it. Mm. He was a very forceful personality. Mm. But mainly, I must admit, Rathbone is the one who comes to my mind as yes. an actor. And uh, there are many people who consider the 1939 Hound of the Baskervilles as the best uh, uh, portrayal of, uh, of Holmes uh, that Rathbone did, and of course they went on from that to the whole other series. I remember seeing John Barrymore as Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Oh, really? He did. One well, of his very early Early? Plays. I know he did one, but I didn't realize it. Was that I a remember. silent or? It was a silent, I believe. I was quite young at the time, but as I recall, he wasn't bad, but then I was very young when I saw it. Uh, gentlemen, just to uh, wind this up. Uh, we've covered the illustrators, and we'll be back with some uh, interesting observations in just a moment. We've been talking uh, of uh, William Gillette, the actor, and uh, for those uh, folks in our audience who are not familiar with William Gillette, he was an actor who wrote uh, and, and got Doyle's permission to use, uh, write a play and, and acted in a play starting in 1898. And he performed in this role until he started his farewell performance in 1929. 
and they amassed a uh, large sum of money as in portraying the role of Holmes and built himself a castle on the Housatonic River complete with his own railroad. And he was identified in many people's minds uh, with Sherlock Holmes as being the best personification uh, that anyone could possibly come up with. And Doyle himself said it was an uncanny uh, resemblance on stage. Uh, I just want to move on to something, and I want to quote uh, from a very famous American Sherlockian writer, Vincent Starrett, and he has written, quote, if our civilization were to meet with an accident and our system of records become disarranged, scholars of the future delving among the relics of our shattered fame might easily reach the conclusion that he, Sherlock Holmes, was a leading, if unconventional, figure of the Victorian age. As a matter of fact, it would be quite easy, I think, to prove that he had lived. Uh, would you care to comment, Dr. Wolf, on the various plaques that honor him uh, around the world? Uh, before I start that, I'd like to say there was a story in one of the science fiction magazines called The Return. It was published many years ago, and it did describe the civilization as the aftermath of an atomic war or every you know, and there was an isolated group living according to certain rules and and apparently they had the, the only book they had left was the Sherlock Holmes oh. stories and they were and they when the these aviators came to, to to visit their area was in Pittsburgh and they, their mission was to dig up the ruins around uh, Carnegie Tech libraries to get the books out, and they promised them they would get them another copy of the book. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> fascinating. And, and they came in, they said, and they people made deductions in the Sherlockian style. That was their only book, and that's how they ruled their lives. But well, now you were asking about... Well, asking about uh, the plaques, the honoring... Well, there, there are several of them. The most famous one. One, I think, may be at the Reichenbach Falls, but the others preceded that was the one at the Criterion Bar where Watson met young Stanford, which resulted in what we have. Right. And right. then there's another at St. Saint Bar St. Hospital where Watson met Sherlock Holmes, which resulted in their rooming together. And uh, the famous line, of course, you uh, have been, been in, in Afghanistan, Afghanistan which is carved into the plaque. Plaque, yes, yes. Uh, actually, we should also mention that, it, that it's so easy to believe in Sherlock Holmes uh, because he still gets letters written to uh, 221B Baker Street. And uh, Jack, would you comment on uh, some of uh, the interest that that's engendered in people throughout the course of years? I can't name the organization, <coughs> but someone has set up Abbey, the Hampton, the Abbey, Abbey Trust. Right. right. They've Abbey. assiduously answered all of these letters and uh, helped to keep the thing alive, and they've done a very uh, noble job of this. A little sidelight to that, I gather, whether this is still true today, I'm not sure, and it probably is, but quite recently, they checked with the London police force for the most frequently asked for address, and it turned out to be 221B Baker Street. <laughs> Strangers in London asking the Bobbies uh, how to get around. Amazing. Amazing. Um, I just thought we ought to mention for a moment uh, the tremendous upsurge in uh, interest in, in homes over the past just 18 months. There's been 
course, a very successful Broadway play. There have been a number of books. Uh, there's a book called Naked is the Best Disguise, The 7% Solution, which has been on the New York Times bestseller list for over 30 weeks. Uh, and of course, last but not least, is a really an incredible volume called The World Bibliography of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, which only includes uh, items up until 1972 and is going to have an appendix published. And only up until 1972, it contains over 6,000 items. And it's a just, if you are interested in Sherlockiana, I guess it's a must. Uh, it just, it's got everything that you could possibly imagine and more, including the fact, uh, which is what I, what I learned through uh, perusing this, that in 1937, NBC had been doing some experimental television in New York to show that it was feasible, and the first thing that they did was uh, a Sherlock Holmes story called The Three Garadebs. And Jack, will you tell us why you think it was The Three Garadebs? Well, The Three Garadebs has one great plus going for it as far as the early days of television go, and that is the scene is so confined. It takes place first in the Baker Street lodgings of Holmes and Watson, and secondly in the room of Mr. Garadeb and nowhere else, so it's a very convenient one for the group to put on with the minimum of scenery and fuss. Incidentally, Sam, I couldn't help but notice, do you always buy books to match your jacket? Oh, uh, no, I don't. I'm <laughs> not, not, not quite aware of that. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. We've just, of course, uh, been uh, mentioning this uh, incredible tome called The World Bibliography of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, and it's written by Ron Burke DeWall, or compiled by Ron Burke DeWall, and he's done an incredible job. And uh, I just was looking through this for a moment, and it's really fantastic to think of some of the languages that the Sherlock Holmes stories have been translated into. Here is a language called G-U-J-A-R-A-T-I, which any, if any of you will try to uh, uh, pronounce. Here's another one called Canarsie, uh, K-A-N-A-R-E-S-E. That couldn't be a Brooklyn uh, uh, <laughs> Well, I know there's a dialect. big different Canarsie than I Here's another one called Telugu, T-E-L-U-G-U. Another one called Urdu, U-R-D-U. So the Sherlockian uh, interest goes around the world. Uh, and again, we, this is an incredible piece of work by Mr. DeWall. I don't want to uh, go too much further without mentioning what I think is an indispensable uh, magazine for anyone interested in Sherlockiana. It is the Baker Street Journal, and it is edited by uh, Dr. Julian Wolfe. And if you are at all interested, uh, we will give you some information that you, where you may write for a subscription, but I urge you, if you have any interest in Sherlock Holmes, to uh, subscribe to this. It comes out four times a year, and I can tell you when it comes to my house, I have very great difficulty doing anything else until we, until I get through it. Uh, we've come uh, in this program, we've discussed uh, many aspects of Sherlock Holmes, but we so far have really not said too much about his great sidekick, John, uh, John, Dr. John Watson. Uh, Bob, would you want to comment on that? 
Well, Dr. Watson is uh, the ideal companion, the ideal friend for all of us. And uh, this is something special in this relationship. And uh, the, uh, the model for Dr. Watson was the uh, secretary of Doyle. And uh, I, it's like Boswell and Johnson. Without the two of them, they're just it wouldn't be the magic there. I don't think we'd have the interest we have in the stories. Bill? Well, there's another reason. I don't understand the references to this man, Doyle, because I, pre though I presume you mean the literary agent. Yes. But Watson evidently had vile handwriting, and as I've said, the literary agent probably revised his manuscripts a bit. Consequently, there are many, many inconsistencies. We know that Watson was wounded in the Afghan war by a Gisele rifle, which fires a hefty bullet. But he was wounded, apparently, in several places. Now, a Gisele bullet is very big, and usually, when you're carrying a chunk of lead like that around in your carcass, you have a dim idea of where it is. But Watson doesn't. He keeps forgetting. Uh, sometimes it's in his shoulder, sometimes it's in his leg, and once there's a reference to his Achilles tendon. So there is a compromise. We know his orderly threw him over his pack horse to take him out. He might have been knocked senseless by a shoulder wound and therefore thrown over a pack horse. And if so, he presented a target so tempting no Afghan could refrain from firing. And out of delicacy, therefore, Watson might have said that his old wound in his leg throbbed. Oh, okay. We'll leave it. We'll leave his wounds at that. Uh, I think we should also, of course, not uh, ha not conclude or, or finish any program about Sherlock Holmes without a pr a mention of the infamous arch-villain Professor Moriarty. Uh, Dr. Wolf, would you uh, comment? Well, Moriarty gets a lot more attention and more notice than he really should have. After all, his part in the stories is very small. And in fact, some people have been bold enough to suggest that he was an invention of Holmes is because <laughs> nobody ever saw him. There's one brief place in the Valley of Fear where I, I Inspector McDonald said he went to talk to him, but outside of that, the only knowledge we have of him is when Holmes tells Watson all these terrible things. And Watson, in one story in the Valley of Fear, he he knew him. He was, but but in the, uh, his last bow, he didn't know. Uh, uh, his, you're right. In the final part, he, he didn't know him at all. And, uh, so it, 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 Moriarty's history is a very, I should say, crooked one, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, and Holmes uh, has, sees this man rushing up to this train in the final problem, and he, and he says, there goes Moriarty. And Watson looks out and sees somebody. It could have been anybody. Right. Uh, right. Of course, and you're right. He is only mentioned in two stories, and in one, uh, he's, uh, in one he's just a men really mentioned. No, he's mentioned in three or four. Just, uh, oh, I'm sorry. For instance, in the missing three quarter, he says, if I ever saw a man fit to take the place of the late... Oh, Moriarty. Uh, oh, I see. There are a couple of other places, places like that yeah. mentioned in passing. But these are the two where he seems to play a big part behind the scenes. 
Okay. Uh, Watson was easily confused anyway. Mm -hmm. After all, his name was usually John H. Watson, but once his wife calls him James, and you'd think that she or her husband would know his given name. And finally, nobody's sure how many wives Watson had. He probably had one, but he also may have had three. I think we... On that note, we'd better conclude because that could take another uh, program of its own to discuss. Yummy, yummy, very interesting.